I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Bruce Campbell, endurance athlete Colin O'Brady, comedian Shannon Balcom, music from Cornell Newton and the Other Ship Connection, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he's going the distance, he's going for speed, Luke Burbank! Whoa. Thank you, Portland. That was raucous. Thank you also to our announcer, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, for this episode of Livewire. We have a phenomenal show in store for you. I think it may be one of our best ever. We have Bruce Campbell here. I'm so excited to meet Bruce Campbell, not because he is the star of the Evil Dead films, which are some of the most beloved cult movies in the history of this nation. Uh, I'm excited to meet Bruce Campbell, not because he's starred on many television shows, which he has, and not even because he has written a number of fascinating books about his life in Hollywood. I am really excited to meet Bruce Campbell because I feel he might be the only other person who understands the living hell that having the name Luke or Bruce is if you make public appearances. Because if you have that kind of name and you go onto a stage, the audience feels an almost physical compulsion to say Bruce or Luke. The reason that's a problem with this whole operation is that this is a radio show. And I don't ever know exactly how much time at the top of the show to dedicate to explaining to the radio listeners that they're not booing me, the live audience in Portland. The worst example of this in my life was a few years ago. I was going on stage as part of a different radio show that I also work with called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a news quiz on NPR. And 
Uh, we were recording the show in front of a huge audience that was like 3,000 people or something. And as soon as my foot hit the stage, all 3,000 of them just rained down Luke's. And the thing was, my mom and dad were at that show. And I could see my mom in the like fourth row just looking around with confusion and concern, like this crowd had already turned on her son. I could see this happening, but I couldn't do anything about it because I was on stage and I had to kind of focus on that. So after the show, I went and I found them. And my mom said, why were all those people booing you? I said, no, 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 mom. It's, they're not booing. It's a thing where they say, Luke, it's like they love me. It's, it's a sign of support. And she could tell I was a little shaken up by the whole thing. And she did that kind of motherly thing where she put her arm around me to comfort me and said, you keep telling yourself that, sweetheart. which is where I get my self-confidence from, <laughs> that kind of mothering. Uh, Bruce Campbell is not the only phenomenal guest we have on this episode of LiveWire. We've also got a guy from right here in Portland named Colin O'Brady. And back in January of 2016, Colin set out to do something called the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is to ski to the North and South Poles and then climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. This took him a grand total of 132 days. To put that in perspective, I have Greek yogurt in my refrigerator that has been there for 132 days. He has definitely gone the distance. Please welcome Portland's own Colin O'Brady to Livewire. Colin, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. How did the idea first occur to you to climb the seven? I can't even say it without laughing because it is a ludicrous idea. How did you come up with this idea? You know, I, uh, I figured that uh, I'd been racing triathlon professionally for many years, 25 countries, six continents. But, NBD. Uh, and I kind of figured that, you know, I needed a bigger challenge than that. So I dreamed up this challenge and set off for it. Other people have done this, right? But I would assume more people have died trying to do it. I think the exact stats are fewer than 50 people have ever completed this challenge. My goal was to be the fastest ever. So the previous record was uh, 197 days. So I set out to break that. Yeah, give him a round of applause. What did your family and friends say when you said, I got an idea for a new hobby? It's called climbing the tallest mountains on seven continents and, for good measure, skiing to the various poles. Um, I think my mom probably summed it up best when she said, uh, I guess this is what I get for telling my kid, uh, dream big, you can do anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> message to the parents listening, lower your kids' expectations or they're going to be in a lot of danger. What part of this journey had you the most nervous? Mount Everest, of course, was, uh, was one of the biggest challenges. It's a scary place. You know, people die on that mountain every year. And in 2014 and 2015, no one actually made the summit of the mountain because of the earthquake in Nepal and the avalanches that happened in 2014. So not only was I setting out to climb eight other peaks, but to climb Mount Everest uh, after it hadn't been climbed for several years. On the summit day, I was climbing. You know, I've been there for several weeks. 
getting used to the thinner air and going up higher and higher. And I was actually, you asked me if I was afraid. So I called home on a sat phone to my fiance, Jenna. And uh, I said, you know, I'm afraid. Uh, I think people are gonna die out here today. The weather forecast is bad. And uh, to her credit, uh, she said, you know what? You're ready. You've trained for this. You're ready. Go, go, go take over the world. You know, you got this, so. Uh, is it possible that she had met someone while you were yeah, away? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, she, she, she's in the audience tonight, so. Because uh, that'd be sort of the perfect crime. Yeah, exactly. Hey, honey, uh, you should try to climb Mount Doom next. Throw that <laughs> ring in there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, after getting a pep talk from her while I'm at 26,000 feet getting rattled around in my tent uh, in this cold weather, I decide to set off. And I'm climbing up. I'm feeling pretty good, you know, feeling strong, but it's nighttime when you're climbing. And then finally, it gets a bit colder, so I need to put on my biggest, largest jacket. It's like this huge, like, Michelin Man puffy, like, coat. And so I have to take my glove off real quick and put the jacket back on. And I look down, and my right hand is completely black, just black. Black as black can be. So From what, a 30 seconds or a minute of exposure? I couldn't figure it out, but obviously I'm freaking out. So I throw the jacket on, put the gloves back on real quick. And, you know, I think to myself, oh, man, that's it. My right hand is gone. And, and you're about how far from I'm the top of Everest? I'm probably 1,000 feet from the summit, but that's like three or four hours more of hiking. That's not like, you know, 1,000 I mean, feet sounds close. If but you're like, going slow, it's yeah, like three yeah, or four exactly. hours. For right? you, it's probably less. I do it faster, but... Um, it's impressive. So I, I get up there and I, you know, I'm starting to think, I'm thinking about Jenna who gave me this pep talk to get out there and it's like, she's still gonna love me. I'm not gonna have my right hand anymore. Yeah. And I was like, well, at least I should come home with the summit. You know, I should at least make it to the summit, right? Like that would be way worse as to where I lost my hand and I didn't go to the summit. So there was really a moment where you thought, I will lose my hand over this to get to the top. I mean, it sounds like that was a version of the choice you were making, if that's what it came down to. Yes, but to be fair, what I thought to myself is I really don't want to lose my feet. And so I had f electronic foot warmers in my boots, so I turned those up to the absolute highest setting possible to make sure I preserve the feet. Uh, Seems reasonable. Why were those not on the highest <laughs> setting before that? So I keep going up, the sun finally rises, and I can see the summit, it's, it's really not far at this point. And I have to adjust my glove. Again, I'm in this negative downward spiral, the hand is gone, just in this super dark place, you know, I can't breathe and all this sort of stuff. And I pull my glove off one more time to make one more adjustment, and I look down, and I was climbing with myself and one Sherpa named Pasang Bodhi, and he looks back at me, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like gesticulating in there, like pumping my fist, because I realized that the hand warmer inside my glove had broken, and it's copper filings, and that's what had dyed my hand and black. Oh. <laughs> How bummed would you have been if you turned around, got down to base camp, just to realize that it was a glove malfunction? Exa exactly. But he was like, is your brain okay? We're not on the summit yet. The summit's still up there. Why are you fist pumping? Not my hand is back. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, but the kicker of the whole story is I get back down to base camp, and I call Jenna again. I said, I'm back down. I made it down safe. You know, I love you. Thanks for giving me the pep talk. I needed it. She's like, okay, did you have any injuries? Are you all right? Any frostbite? Nothing. I said, well, you know, I burned my feet. And, and, and she said, I, I think the, the sat phone's breaking up. It sounded like you said you burned your feet like frostbite. I know, no burns, like hot burns. I turned my foot warmers up too high. That I she goes, you are the only idiot to go up on Mount Everest and burn yourself. Not freeze yourself, burn yourself. That's Colin O'Brady. This is Livewire Radio. We need to take a very short break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. 
Hey, did you know Livewire gets support from Ergo Depot? I can speak firsthand about the wonders of the Ergo Depot Jarvis desk. It's the best height adjustable standing desk anywhere on the planet. And I know because I use one. When I'm doing the show on stage, I am using a Jarvis desk from Ergo Depot and it is absolutely as advertised. You know, we get these jobs and we go to them and we think we're grown-ups, but our inner child wants to move and groove and boogie and be active. Don't ignore your inner child. Get yourself a sit-stand desk and other ergonomic furniture from Ergo Depot. Go over to ergodepot.com to find out more. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI Public Radio International. We're coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. And we've got Colin O'Brady here. Colin uh, finished an incredible challenge in record time. It was to climb the tallest mountains on all seven continents and also uh, ski to the South and North Pole. You did this in 132 days. Is there something physically different about you that allows you to do this? Perhaps it sounds cliche. I think the physical challenge of this is huge, but I think that really the mental challenge of going day in and day out, being out there for over 132 days, going from mountain to mountain, it was uh, even more of a bigger mental challenge. What do you do, though, in your mind? Like, because, you know, if I'm going to the refrigerator <laughs> and then, you know, the door is closed, I might just give it up for the night. <laughs> what are you doing mentally that like the rest of us are not doing? How are you actually overcoming it? What are the steps you take? Tragedy, I think, turned into a triumph for me. So uh, in 2008, I was severely burned in a fire in Thailand. I was doing the really smart thing of called fire jump roping, where you light a huge uh, rope on fire and jump it. Turns yeah, out that didn't turn out well for me. Yeah, this is like a you kind of expect a, that. this is like a beach touristy kind of party activity, right? Yeah, it's, it's fairly common in Thailand, to, to right. my defense. And you were about how old? Uh, just out of college, you know, right. the prefrontal cortex wasn't quite uh, fully yeah. formed at that point. And, and, and this is very serious. You caught on fire from this rope and were burned pretty extremely, right? I was uh, caught on fire to my, my neck. Fortunately, uh, the ocean was right there, so I was able to jump into the ocean and put out the flames. But believe it or not, when you've burned 25% of your body and you jump into salt water, it's not the most pleasant, you know, emotion. Yeah. You may have also set a record for fastest person from the rope to the water. I, think I, that, I mean, that's true. Don't you know, I'm just trying out. to rack them up. So, what happened after that? You're a young guy. You've had these really extreme burns. Uh, what was it like trying to recover from that? You know, in that moment, there was kind of two paths. The doctors were telling me, "You may never walk again normally." And I was on a rural uh, part of Thailand when this happened. So, you know, I was went underwent eight surgeries. There's a cat running around my bed in the ICU. Um, you know, really, really not the situation you want to be in. Shout out to my mother again, the same person who told me to dream big and anything is possible. Um, she said, you know, you're going to be all right. Let's set a goal. You know, let's fixate on a goal. Um, you know, and I was like, okay. And the goal I set for myself was to complete a triathlon. You know, 18 months of learning how to walk again. I was flown here uh, back home in Portland after three months. I was still in a wheelchair, you know, carried, carried from the plane. Um, and it was just step by step, learning how to walk again and eventually running again and completing a triathlon, which turned out to be uh, winning a triathlon, actually, not just completing the race. So, Are you serious? <laughs> I wow. Ent I entered the... Is it possible you're from Krypton? <laughs> or at least space? Maybe, perhaps, body, or, or maybe space is the next challenge. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about that. Actually, but, we're talking to we're talking to Colin O'Brady, 
who climbed the tallest mountains on seven different continents and then also uh, skied to the South and North Pole, did that in a record amount of time. Uh, one of the mountains you climbed was Mount Kilimanjaro. That's right. How long did it take you to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Um, I did it in a single day, so 11 and a half hours from the gate to the summit. What is the usual time it takes someone to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? It's generally climbing in about a week. <laughs> so were you, I mean, literally jogging up the mountain? How are you, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, like, how are you getting up the mountain that fast? What is your pace like? It's pretty quick. You know, I definitely uh, started out at a pretty breakneck speed. One benefits of doing these mountains so closely together is that you're acclimatized from the previous mountains. So I had been on the top of Aconcagua, which is the tallest mountain in South America, um, at about 23,000 feet um, just a few days before that. So after flying halfway around the world, getting to Kilimanjaro, I was just ready to go. So uh, I went for it in a single day and it worked out. Was there a moment aside from your monkey paw you had on Everest where... You were really, like, ready to give up. Like, you uh, thought, I absolutely cannot do this any longer. There was many moments, you know, being out, you know, to put in perspective for you what it feels like to be on the South and North Pole. Um, at one point, I got outside of my tent with a boiling cup of water, literally still boiling in my cup, and threw it into the air. I think it, I've seen a picture of it this. It immediately turns to ice. Like, just ice in the air. So imagine, you know, dragging a 150-pound sled through that every single day, day after day after day, and that level of cold. Um, that's enough to discourage anyone, I think. Where do you go from here, Colin O'Brady? <laughs> I mean, like, is it... How do you find excitement in the world? Is it waiting in line for brunch in Portland? <laughs> Which is a challenge. Like, seriously, what do you do with the rest? How old are you? I'm 31. What do you do with the rest of your life at this point? You know, it's a good question. Maybe you have some uh, suggestions for me. But no, the, the real mission behind this Wait, entire project... you really breezed right past it. I got a lot of ideas no, for all you. All right, all right. <laughs> Um, you know, the real mission behind this entire project, of course, I had this huge goal to set a world record, um, and I actually went out and set two world records with this project. It was amazing. Yeah, but because not only did you do this overall journey faster than anyone, but you just incidentally climbed the mountains faster than they've ever been climbed, right? Yes, exactly. So the Seven Summits and the Explorers Grand Slam world records. But ultimately, you know, this challenge for me was greater. Um, you know, I have a deep care for kids, kids' health. Uh, in this country, we have uh, an epidemic of inactivity. And so my hope was to inspire kids to get outside and move their bodies, not to climb Mount Everest, not to whatever, but what can they find in their own backyards? And that was an amazing part of this project. Um, there's a couple of teachers from the Evergreen Public Schools nearby who are in the uh, audience tonight who are... Uh, they're heroes of mine, um, and we worked with their students as well as thousands of other kids uh, across the country, and they were following along. You know, they were sending me video clips. They're like, hey, Colin, I know you're on Everest right now, but my Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. You know, my, my Everest is to be a gymnast one day like Simone Biles, so I'm going to train super hard. And so to have that impact with kids is really what this is all about. So my project was called Beyond 7-2, the seven peaks and the two poles, but it's beyond that. So it's about getting people, you know, young kids, but also also adults inspired to get outside, move their bodies, be active, and hopefully succeed. My understanding is that your fiance was instrumental in the logistics of this and in a ton of the super important kind of stuff that really made this possible. You were doing the climbing, but she was 
as important as anybody else. Oh, 100%. We could not have done this without her. It was a team effort. We dreamed this up together. And although it was me out there climbing the mountains, she was there every step of the way from the logistics to the 100 hours a week of work to the worry to the, uh, you know, you, I call her up and I say, oh, I finished Aconcagua early. I think we should slot in Kilimanjaro. Can you figure out how to get me over to Tanzania tomorrow? And she's like, what? Like, <laughs> But one of my favorites was going back the other way, how we set the, uh, the second world record is I came down off Everest and I called her uh, the same time I told her I burned my feet and she said, okay, great. So you have a shot at this other record now, but that means you need to summit Denali in the next week. So um, what I'm going to need from you tonight is you're going to need to walk down to base camp. There's a helicopter there. The helicopter is going to take you to Kathmandu. Then there's a, sorry, you can't sleep a night in Kathmandu tonight, but there's a plane that we're going to get you on. It's going to take you to Dubai, Seattle, then to Anchorage, and then you're going to start up Denali. How does, how does that feel to you? And I said, how does that feel to me? Hyperbole aside, it has literally taken me an hour to take off my boots and get in my sleeping bag. You want me to do what tomorrow? <laughs> She's oh. like a human travelocity. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're glad you made it back. Colin O'Brady, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire. Thank you, Colin. This week's episode is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, offering online delivery. A few seconds on the laptop and salmon ceviche is minutes away, just as the inventors of the laptop intended. More info at WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right, our musical guest this hour is a composer and trumpeter originally from Miami. He's played with Aretha Franklin, who you might have heard of, as well as Portland luminaries like Pete Krebs, Billy Hart, and Willie Vlotten. He even has a signature line of trumpets called the Neutron, which is going to be real trouble if North Korea gets a hold of it. Please welcome Farnell Newton and the Other Ship Connection to Livewire. Come on, y'all. I need y'all to put your hands together like this. Come on. Nothing, 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 nothing but the fire. And I don't need nothing but the fire. We don't give you nothing but the fire. Yeah. Oh, I 
say fall Or somebody say fall Come on, cow, monitor connection this week's show is brought to you by alaska airlines an airline that does nice things like treat people like actual human beings not seat numbers and they sponsor this show so we can concentrate on producing fantastic content for you instead of having to pander for donations thank you alaska our next guest shannon balcom is a four-time winner of back fence pdx 
Russian roulette division where contestants spin a wheel and have to tell a true story right there on the spot with no practice and no notes. She's also the proud owner of a chihuahua named Kenny Loggins. And she's decided to really go the distance as an entertainer by launching a new podcast called Are We Still Friends? She did this, of course, because of the recent congressional act that mandates every American must have a podcast by 2017. Please welcome the wonderful Shannon Balcom to Livewire. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to Livewire. Hi. Thanks for having me. I found out about your work by checking out the website of uh, Backfence PDX, which is this kind of competitive storytelling organization here in Portland. Uh, Explain that, because some people might think of that as sort of an oxymoron. How does competitive storytelling work? I like it because I don't have to do anything except for tell people things that happen in my life. Do you feel like you're trying to invite weird stuff into your life to have more stories? Because you know, you're probably running out at this point, right? Yeah. No, I have to like consciously leave my house to like not watch Netflix because that's a dumb story. So I have to go like put myself in weird situations to get more material. I think part of why your work really resonated with me is because I think you and I have kind of a similar thing in our mind, which is that there is the person that we actually are, and then the person that we think we could be if we just did a few things differently. Oh, yeah. And the distance between those people is fairly vast. Like, I'm going to do the Grand Slam that Colin did. I think I've got it in the bag. It's fine. I I think if I I had seen that on Pinterest and it had been, like, a cute image (laughs) with, like, a fun font, I would have done it. Yeah. I would have gone for it and done it. I see things... So do you know Pinterest? You know, I'm aware of Pinterest. I'm not a member of Pinterest. Don't be, because it's a terrible thing. And I go on there and I see these ideas and I'm like, well, this, you know, making my patio look nice will make me a true woman. Yes. You know, like a real good... One of those traditional markers of femininity. Yeah, like I... A nice patio. I'm halfway 50s, halfway 2016. So, you know, I want to be a good wife. My husband went out of town. Uh, for like some boys dumb thing and I'm glad you're keeping an open mind yeah whatever I don't know drinking and casinos or something and I was like oh I should do this thing in our patio and surprise him when he gets back he'll be so (laughs) proud of me if I can make our patio on like our 12th floor apartment in downtown Portland look like an oasis Um, Did you see this on Pinterest? Is this where you got the idea? Literally, if you go to my Pinterest, there's a board that's like downtown apartment patio oasis. I think that's what I was going for. And it was uh, this idea I had was to take a pallet. Um, So I was like going to fill that with dirt and plants and then prop it up. And it would be beautiful. We'd have a bounty of flowers and vegetables Growing out of the wood pallet? the summer. Yeah. Okay. So there were pictures of it, so someone did it, right? <laughs> like, they weren't... I don't think they were Photoshopped. Uh. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to do this. And so he's out of town, and so I take my Jetta to Home Depot. <laughs> because I'm like, well, I guess that's where you get... Pa- I mean, there's not a... You Google pallets, Portland, Oregon, you're not going to find a lot. And I didn't know how to spell pallets. <laughs> so... Um, I get to Home Depot and I see the guy and I'm like, I need one of those. And there's like 
barbecue supplies sitting on it. He's like, you can't have one of those. I was like, okay, well, I want one. (laughs) So I need you to give me one. He's like, well, I can rent one to you, but it's $5. And I was like, okay, but I'm not going to bring it back. (laughs) He's like, well, then you won't get your deposit back. And I'm like, that's called buying. So I just bought a pallet. And so I took it... um, I took it into the parking lot to put it in my Jetta. Yeah. And you won't believe this, but it didn't fit. And um, there's, it's like noon on a Friday, and there's a man in a pickup truck next to me, and he hops out and he's like, you having some trouble, little? And I'm like, yes, I'm obviously having trouble. I'm dripping sweat with a pallet trying to go in this trunk, it won't fit. He's like, well, where's your house? I'll take you to your house. And so I'm like- Danger. Yeah. Stranger danger. Beep, beep. And so I start, I like start backing up and I'm yelling at him like, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> As if he cares. He's like, all right, lady, I was trying to be nice. So I bail the pallet off of my trunk and it shatters into a million pieces. Just in the parking and lot leave. of the- I just left. So I went to Lowe's. <laughs> and they were fantastic. Really? They were great. Oh, helped me load it in. It did fit in the Jetta. Punctured my leather. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah, though. because of I the mean, oasis you're yeah, going to create on like, the patio. I won't be thinking about that leather when I'm having yeah. a Mai Tai yeah. by my pansies. Yeah, absolutely. So I spend... At Lowe's, you get my money. So I spend hundreds of dollars on flowers and soil and what's the best fertilizer you have human i'll take all of it yeah human fertilizer perfect i can replenish that so (laughs) i i get it home to our apartment and i like you know i'm borrowing my dad's staple gun staple gunning like landscape fabric around the back pack it all in and i'm like i'll let it it's friday afternoon so i'm like i'll let it sit a couple days so that the roots take (laughs) before i prop it up on sunday when my husband gets home and so he calls me and he's like i'm on my way home i'll see you in 45 minutes i'm like okay it's go time so i uh (laughs) it weighs and the size of a baby elephant, like, is how much it weighs. Right. Because it's, so, A, the pallet is heavy yeah. by itself, and now it's full of dirt and plants. And it's sopping wet. Because <laughs> you have to water plants. Right? Uh, that's what Pinterest said. So I jam it up against the wall, and everything comes out the bottom. <laughs> there wasn't a thing left inside the pallet. And... What goes through your mind at that moment? Because I've been in situations like that where you genuinely don't know what the next move is, you know? Yeah. I mean, nothing went through my mind. Just what have I done? So I sat out there and cried until my husband got home. My husband gets home. I'm not in the apartment, so he sees the glass door to the patio, sees me sitting like crisscross applesauce in dirt and sod and fully formed plant roots like they were still in that little square shape and tears just streaming down my face as well as like mulch or whatever all over everything and um he's like what have you done (laughs) and i was like i did this for you and 
And he's like, don't you dare bring me into this. I didn't, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. And I was like, well, ring on the finger. It's your problem now. And we... It's like the Beyonce song. Yeah, if, you didn't, if you didn't want to clean up a poorly conceived Pinterest project, you shouldn't have put a, a ring 12, on it. In a 12th floor apartment. So, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Most of the dirt and flowers we bailed off into the street. Off of the patio. On 3rd and Jefferson in downtown Portland. Yeah. There was a Starbucks underneath us. And it had, like, the umbrellas out, so there was, like, a full thing of, like, I don't know, begonias just, like, <laughs> chilling on the umbrella. And we were, it was the middle of, sorry! Like, I, don't, I didn't know what to do. I'm still crying. What was the reaction from the people down on the street who had you know, gardening raining down on right. them? Right. I think that's what I love about Portland is joyous. <laughs> you know? Thank you for these flowers goddess Gaia from above yeah it was I was celebrated as a hero well that's a happy ending way to go the distance Shannon Balcom ladies and gentlemen right here on Livewire that's Shannon Balcom she has a new podcast out which you can find in iTunes called are we still friends our next guest needs no introduction, but we're going to do one anyway, because that's kind of how it works on a radio show. Bruce Campbell first came to America's attention for his role in the Evil Dead films. Since then, he's gone on to star in countless roles, from a retirement home Elvis in Bubba Hotep to Bounty Hunter Briscoe County Jr. on TV with hundreds of stops in between. If anyone has gone the distance in Hollywood, it's this guy. Please welcome Bruce Campbell to Livewire. Thank you. I'm going to assume that that's kind of for both of us. Yeah, I got no problem with that. I think it sounds kind of cool. You smell amazing. What are you wearing? Um, that was not my planned first question, but now I have to ask it. I have lavender on my property. Is that a euphemism, or do you mean it's like at your house? Uh, we bought a very rural piece of property in southern Oregon, and it had lavender on it. So my wife and I are standing there staring at about an acre of lavender going, well... Start rubbing it. There it is. What, what do we do? Uh, we distilled our first batch on, at Steven Seagal's ranch. He had a distillery. There are so many into, things to unpack from that statement. He's... He's into botanicals. There are many sides to him, apparently. So his ranch manager, I don't think he even told him. He's like, yeah, we can do it for you. It's a, it was a beautiful distillery. Uh, Under Siege 2 paid for it, I guess. I don't know, something. And we distilled it. It's like steaming broccoli. You know, you, you pitchfork it in. So it was me and Mop Kettle. We took it over to Steven Seagal's ranch distilled the lavender, and then we had 30 pounds of oil. We're like, 
What the hell do we do with that? <laughs> we give it to crew members, uh, particularly the smelly ones, which were uh, the burn notice uh, Miami crew members were the worst smelling of all. That, of course, uh, a show that you were on, Burn Notice. Burn Notice, that's right. So uh, we gave them uh, various lavender products, and we knew that we were successful when the Teamsters got very pushy after a while. Like, hey, Bruce, yo, where's the lavender? I'm starting to stick up the place. Where's the soap and the, you know, the ointment that I got last year? We had to stay on top of our uh, lavender, so we distilled it this year at a different place. Because Stephen found out. He was like, what are you doing? Get off my property. And that's not, not the guy you want to piss off based on his movies and also Yeah, because his, his stunt goatee. man will kill me. <laughs> Did you always want to do this? Did you always want to be an actor? Uh, pretty early, about eight. I saw my dad in a play. He was in the St. Dunstan's Guild of Cranbrook outside of Detroit. They have a beautiful theater there. So every summer they would do these big splashy musicals. And I went to see, I think, Brigadoon in like 1968. I was 10. And my dad was in it and he was cracking jokes and people were laughing and he was dancing with women that weren't my mother. And he was having a really good time. My dad was an okay guy, but he was really having a blast up there. And I'm like, what is going on with that? And it just seemed like a really good idea. And then I got old enough, I was an extra in the play King and I, because again, they would do splashy musicals every summer. Well, I was just a schmo in the background, but the kid who was playing the King's son got sick. And I have no idea why they picked me to go, okay, you're the King's son. I got to sing, I got to do whatever, so. Were you a handsome kid? Because you're a very handsome adult man. I was a very skinny, angular, angular fellow, very skinny fellow. And uh, so I played the king's son, and that sort of, that sort of put it over the top. I'm like, I think I can do this. So I got quickly typecast into people with lots of body wash for the next couple of summers. Chang the house boy in Fiorello, Polynesian servant boy in South Pacific. I really, I really stretched it. I was typecast at 12. <laughs> and then in high school, you went to school with Sam Raimi, your yes. frequent collaborator, director of the yeah. Evil Dead movies and yeah. Spider-Man, a lot of other stuff. What were you guys like together in high school? Oh, Sam was uh, hilarious. He, um, first day of this uh, modern European history, a stupid class in high school, it's way too serious for no good reason, taught by Mr. Gilmet. Sam is in the class before me, plants a seed that I do a great imitation of Mr. Gilmet. I come in the class, I've never met this guy. He's taking role, gets to my name, Campbell. I'd like to see you after class. I'm like, I don't even know this guy. He wants me to see me after class. Before the class ended so that he could humiliate me in public, he said, I understand you do a great imitation of me. I'd like to see it. And I did do a great imitation of him. And I, it's the closest I ever came to flunking a, a class was Mr. Gomet. This yeah. was your first, yeah. essentially your first yeah, collaboration Sam I, I with dropped, Sam Raimi? Yeah, then I dropped typing class and took radio speech, and Sam was in radio speech. He would sit behind me. His favorite thing in the world was to take his pencil, his number two pencil. Anytime I was going to answer, a, I got picked to answer a question, the back of the pencil would go in the back of my neck. 
and Sam would slowly increase the pressure during the, the, the entire course of my answer. And I was like, there's no, he's not going to break me. He's not going to get me. Sam's like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to break him. It became a personal duel right from the start for no reason whatsoever. I mean, he snapped the tip off of that thing one time. I'm like, and then I'd turn around like, what are you crazy? He'd go, I tried to help you. <laughs> Hold on, Bruce. We have to take a very short break. There's so much I want to talk to you about, uh, and we will do that right after this. We have Bruce Campbell here, the one and only Bruce Campbell. This is Livewire Radio. Stay with us. You know, one of the ways that Livewire is able to keep going is due to our League of Extraordinary Listeners. If you have not gone to livewireradio.org yet and signed up, you are missing out, my friend because we have all kinds of amazing thank you gifts over there at the website. If you sign up for, say, $10 a month, you will get a totes bag, a totes bag full of amazing stuff. And it helps us keep making this show. We are independent. We are really an anomaly in public radio, and we only exist because of the generous support of listeners just like you. If you can, take a minute to go over to livewireradio.org and help us out right now. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio from PRI. We have Mr. Bruce Campbell here from so many different movies, television shows, a couple of great books that you've written, and you've probably been most well known for playing the Ash character from the Evil Dead films, and now the Evil Dead TV show on stars, Ash versus Evil Dead, which is amazing. Why do you think people love this character? Why does this guy resonate? Ash has no skills whatsoever. (laughs) He's your neighbor as the hero to save the world. He doesn't really have a clue. And now with Ash versus Evil Dead, he's way over the hill, and he so doesn't want to do it now. He didn't want to do it 25 years ago when we did Army of Darkness. You think he wants to do it now? He, He just... He wants to smoke weed and get laid in his crappy trailer, and it's not, it's not working out that way. So he's the most flawed hero I've ever played in my entire life, and I, I, someone asked me the other day, aren't you getting bored of playing the character Ash? I'm, I'm just getting started, man. This is just getting, this is just getting good now. He's got dialogue now. Yeah. That's the good thing about television. He's a, he's a chatty Cathy now. Evil Dead 2, I'd look at the call sheet and go, nope, no lines today, just a lot of screaming. (laughs) And one day I was like, oh my God, I have dialogue today. Are you happy that this ended up being a TV show? Because I read that the original idea was to make it a film, another Evil Dead film, and then it made more sense to do it on TV. Yeah, Sam Raimi, you know, he makes these big high-budget movies now. Are we going to make a $300 million Evil Dead? That thing's going to die on the slab. (laughs) And then the, the whole franchise would be dead, dead as a doornail, dead as it was 25 years ago when Army of Darkness died on the slab. People forget that. Oh, Army of Darkness, that's a cult classic. My ass, it failed at the box office. What did that feel like for you? Because that's a huge opportunity to star in a film and then it dies. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I've starred in one studio motion picture in my entire life. I starred in a universal produced movie, Army of Darkness, and never starred in another studio film after that movie. I don't really care. It's been fine. But to bring it, to be able, well, I have to say though, for the sake of fans, if you really want the most amount of carnage and mayhem, it's going to come in television. 
You're going to get the most hours of it. You know, we've already got you. We've got 10 hours of carnage and mayhem for you lined up. Five fresh hours of, of the most ridiculous crap you've ever seen in your life. And they, fans should also realize if we did this as a movie, it'd be R-rated. And two of the three Evil Dead movies had no rating. So it would be butchered, in essence. If it was on cable, butchered. Broadcast, mega butchered. It stars. We have no content restriction whatsoever. Obviously, we can swear all the time, and that's a bad thing to give to actors because they just, they just want to swear all the time because they can. We're like... We had to decide who's going to swear and who's not going to swear. <laughs> like, which characters would swear? Well, you should be able to because you outrank everybody, Yeah, right? but I, I, can, I use the weirder swear words uh, now. Yeah. I'm like, we're going to take care of this horse pucky right now. <laughs> you know, it's a little more inventive. What is it uh, like uh, for you on an average day? Like, do people recognize you multiple times a day, and how do those interactions tend to play out? Uh, they'll recognize me if they look at me like picking up a bag off the ground and they'll look up my nose like an Evil Dead 2 shot and they'll go, oh, hey! <laughs> I did a movie with Ernie Hudson called uh, Tornado. Uh, another American yeah. classic. And, and Ernie had no idea who I was and that's fine. They were worried if they all applauded at once it would overdrive the microphones. Yeah, exactly. So we had a scene where we're getting down into the storm cellar and he goes down first, and he looks back up, and he saw me silhouetted in the trap door. He goes, you're that evil dead guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw that day. I was in the military in Germany. The silhouette, and I brought it back. So he, people, have to see, people have to see you from an angle that yeah. reminds them of something Ash did. Something very warped. <laughs> if someone sees you cutting your hand off, they'll be like, you're the guy from That's Evil the guy. Dead. Yeah, totally. If you had not become the actor that you, you have become, if you hadn't had this career, what do you think you would be doing? Uh, definitely some uh, out, outdoor, like, um, park... La lavender park, farming? No, no lavender farming. Uh, park ranger-ish type crap. Yeah, I love... Uh, I have, I'm surrounded by government land where I live, and I just go... I just take off and just walk for hours in the middle of nowhere, and it's my favorite thing to do ever is to get completely covered with poison oak and to give my wife a big hug when I come back. She's like, you son of a bitch, you've got poison oak all over you. Have you ever been out in the middle of the woods and you come across some regular hikers and you're all welted up from your poison oak and they think that Ash is out there in the woods with them and that maybe Evil Dead is real and it's happening to them right then? Because that would blow my mind if I happened upon you in the woods. Well, we shot Evil Dead, the original, in the belt buckle of the, of the Bible belt in, uh, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee in 1979. And uh, the blood was so extensive that it was impossible to get it off. So I had to go ride in the back of the pickup truck at the end of shooting when the sun is coming up now and walk into the shower with my clothes on because it was the best way to melt, melt it off slowly. But... We rode past uh, churches on Sunday morning, and I'm waving, and I'm Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the back. And they saw Jesus that day, I think. <laughs> I mean, it was the looks on their faces yeah. was they were praying immediately, like grabbing hands yeah. and things like that. that Anybody who was on the fence, I think you drove them straight to the pulpit, <laughs> so you really did a service for them. Yes, we did. Bruce Campbell, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Well, all right, that just about wraps it up for this episode of Livewire Radio. Uh, let's tell you who helped make it all possible. Thanks, of course, to our guests, Bruce Campbell, Shannon Balcom, Colin O'Brady, and Farnell Newton and the Other Ship Connection. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Jason Rouse is our announcer and also writes for the show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, This Week with Ethan Fox. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Carlson Audio. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom, and our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager, and our copywriter is Hannah Withers. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to members Ken and Mary Rate. More information about our show or how you can become a member is available over at livewireradio.org. Plus, you can get our podcast over at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find that kind of stuff. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.